I want this conversation. I want it to be different for our daughters. I want it to be different for in five years than it is now. I want us to be able to have the hard conversations in a way that we don't have to polarize each other and decide who's good and who's bad and, and really be able to find common ground, not through erasing difference, but through respecting it and understanding that most people care a lot and most people want to do the right thing and that we have to give each other our codes in order to be able to do that. I believe that what we do as women in the privacy of our own minds is the single greatest determinant of our lives. I'm Emma Title, and you are listening to the Women Today podcast, where we are unpacking and investigating the new female psychology. I am a psychotherapist, coach, and teacher who is passionate about women's internal and external freedoms. You are in the right place if you want to hear in-depth stories about women's lives. On this show, we dig deep into the minds and hearts of women to understand what it really takes to heal, to grow, and to experience psychological freedom so that we can create lives of authenticity, fulfillment, and contribution. This is a place to receive nourishment, inspiration, and guidance as we continue to show up for the complexity and nuance of our lives as women. I'm so glad that you're here, and let's get started with today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Women Today podcast. As you know, if you heard the episode last week, we are continuing the conversation around women and trauma and the experiences of triumph that we can have, even if we've experienced massively difficult, stressful, or even unthinkable events in our lives. And I couldn't think of a better person, better interview guest to be kicking off this conversation with other than Kimberly Ann Johnson. Kimberly Johnson is a sexological body worker, somatic experiencing practitioner, yoga teacher trainer, postpartum advocate, and single mom. She helps women heal from birth injuries, gynecological surgeries, and sexual boundary violations. She is the author of the early mothering classic, The Fourth Trimester, And as of today, the day that this podcast is going live, her new book, Call of the Wild, How We Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Power, and Use It for Good, is officially available in stores everywhere. And I am incredibly fortunate that I was able to receive and read an advanced copy of Kimberly's new book, and it blew me away. Seriously, it was inspiring, insightful, educational easy to read. It felt like it was a book written for the women of today. Seriously. Kimberly has an incredible ability to weave trauma theory, attachment theory, women's issues, the most current and pressing social issues of our time, all together in this really smart and practical book that helps us to make the link between trauma healing, how that is directly linked to us having the full capacity of our nervous system, our bodies, our mammalian selves available to us, and then how that leads to an incredible amount of capacity for personal as well as collective change. 
So once we get more into this interview, I think things are going to make a lot more sense. But I just have to say, if you are someone who is interested in these topics and who wants a really fresh, pioneering, cutting edge lens on it, I highly, highly, highly recommend her book, Call of the Wild. Kimberly is a huge inspiration to me. Her first book, The Fourth Trimester, was basically my lifeline um, when I was pregnant and in my postpartum time. And she's just really a brave, spirited, bold, and brilliant human being. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, and I know you're going to get a lot from it. Kimberly, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I am so thrilled to have you here today. And I'm sort of bursting at the seams with everything I want to talk to you about your new book. It's phenomenal. Thank you. How are you feeling, first of all, you know, just as this book is about to come out, how are you feeling in yourself? I'm feeling completely on fire. Um, so excited, so full of energy. I was worried because I moved from Brooklyn to California in May. And then I thought that I was going to go back to New York. And then it became clear that I wasn't. And then I was just exhausted because I was still finishing the book. And I was moving around last summer with my daughter trying to figure out where she was going to go to school. And really for the fall, I just felt super overwhelmed, very tired, very drained. And I was, you know, had all these pending things. I have a new website, a new podcast, just sort of everything coming to convergence. And since the new year, well, first I started a new relationship and that has been one of the best things ever for my nervous system. But also now that it's getting closer and I have the book in my hands and it's so beautiful, the letters are gold foil and they shimmer in the light. And I just, it's like the timing couldn't be better. And, you know, writing a book just is a lot of energy output and a lot of time. But the best thing is when people start getting it in their hands and people start engaging with the material and hearing, hearing how it hits and lands for different people. And I'm, I'm just so excited about it. Oh, well, I, I haven't had the hard copy in my hands, but I have read every single word. And I just have to say it is stunning. It is impeccable. I don't know how you accomplished what you did in terms of everything you integrated. And so to hear that you're well and with a lot of energy right now after everything you've been through makes me really happy. Uh, yeah, it's just, you know, it's one of those things like my, it was so funny. My daughter got the book in her hands and she looked at the camera. Someone was filming it as I opened it and she goes, I hope you guys like this one. And I hope it lasts you four years because she's not writing another one till I'm through with high school. (laughs) 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 So live it up, people. Um, Yeah. uh, But it's it. This book, you know, my first book I wrote and I wrote about an experience that I wanted to have and that I realized I should have had and that all women should have. But I didn't have. And I wrote myself out of my postpartum period. This book. Like I, I own it. I am it. I am the Jaguar. I know this material inside and out. I've worked with thousands of women. So it's coming from a, it's the other, I, the other book is beautiful. And it also comes from a place of wholeness, 
but this experience I've had, and I've had it in so many layers and it's been, it, it's the culmination of everything that I've done. So it also just in the cover, the cover, the Jaguar that's on the cover is painted by someone who happened to go to the same yoga teacher training that I did, who happened to paint Jaguars and clitorises. I'm like, okay, so we are, we're like alter egos. Okay. Like just accept it. And then she started taking my classes and then it turns out she studied with the Kogi people in Colombia and Kogi means Jaguars and they live in Santa Marta in the most uh, diverse ecosystem in the entire Amazon. And that's where it emerges out of. And so there's just so many layers to it. So it's awesome. Oh, wow. I want to get into all of it with you. And I, okay, so tell us, where did you first get the idea to write this book? And I also just want to affirm, Kimberly, you are, you, this I feel that this book through and through is you and you own it. As you said, you are the Jaguar and I just couldn't agree more. So, so where did you get the idea for the book and why this book and why now? Prior to the Me Too movement, my last book is really, which is the fourth trimester for people who are listening. I started working with women specifically with birth injuries, birth trauma, gynecological trauma, and sexual boundary violations. And I'm a sexological body worker. So that means I do hands-on, hands-in work. I work in women's vaginas and pelvises. And I worked with, it was like an incubation period. I think I worked with 800 women in three years. In that time, I realized that there was, there's a predator prey dynamic in the nervous system, which is represented by fight, flight, and freeze. So outside of the social nervous system. When I was in somatic experiencing school, we would watch videos of wolves and rabbits. We would watch videos of, of hunts, not a lot, but some. And I was always rooting for the rabbit or the antelope. And I thought that everybody would be. And then when they turned off the video and they said, okay, who is identifying with the predator and who is identifying with the prey? It was about 70, 30. So about 30% of the class were related with the prey. And I was kind of horrified by that. But I also realized, oh, but these are people, I can't dismiss this because these are people that I like and I respect. They're not aggro, creepy people. They're like, this is a real part of the nervous system. And then I just started having like a cascade of clicks inside me. Oh, no wonder every movie I like is an underdog movie. No wonder um, I organize myself around activism and and the people who have the least. Oh, no wonder that I became a vegetarian. All these belief systems and behaviors came clear to me because I was so identified with the prey in a visceral way. When women would come to my office and I would say, okay, you be the wolf and I'll be the rabbit because they would come in in rabbit mode. They would come in talking about situations where they were rabbits. When I suggested to them to be a wolf, they would already go into a rabbit gesture. So they would already start to tremor or they would get down in a submissive gesture. In that moment, I had many of them, but in one of them in particular, a woman went into a freeze pattern and she was present enough to say like, I'm in freeze, I can't move. And so I helped her come out of that freeze. And in a, a process of six weeks, a lot changed in her life. She was able to go running outside and not stop um, when homeless people were approaching her. She was able to sit next to her husband on the couch again. She was able to handle her three children in a way that she couldn't handle them before. 
I just realized, oh, it's not that she doesn't, intellectually, she knows she has sexual freedom. Intellectually, she knows she's safe, but her physical self is not able to do this predator role. So I taught her how to be a predator. And of course, if you're listening, you're thinking probably who would want to be a predator because it's that word is completely co-opted and moralized in our culture. But I realized, oh, this is a process. And then the Me Too movement happened. And everyone, you know, the proverbial lid came off of Pandora's box. And things are, you know, women are unshaming themselves, but then also having really intense reactions after that with no like collective network to process or metabolize all of the trauma that's just flying around. Men and women started calling me, telling me experiences that they'd had, wondering if they were okay, wondering what they should do now, asking about repair. Was this okay? Was it not okay? And at that moment, it was a coalescence of extremely long waiting lists in my practice. And I had like five different practices going. So I had one in Vancouver, one in New York, one in Chicago, one in LA, and one in San Diego. And they were all having like 100 people on the wait list. And most people go, they think like that's bragging or they think like, oh, well, I wish I I had that problem. Well, I didn't. I felt completely overwhelmed by it and also sort of defeated because I'm like, okay, if everyone needs this work, how am I going to do it? And, you know, from a business point of view, you people are like, well, it wasn't scalable or it wasn't this or that. But really for me, it was like, if I want to change the language that is common to the culture, which is was also what I wanted to do with the first book, then I am, I'm going to have to talk to more people in a different way. So at that time, it was October 2017. And I recorded a video the day after, um, it was a Sunday when Rose McGowan first came out in the Me Too resurgence started. On Monday, I recorded a video that went viral where I basically said, look, if we don't resolve this predator-prey spectrum, we're just going to take people out of power, but the same power dynamics are there. And also, to what extent, as women, are we betraying ourselves because we can't access our power? Which, of course, was super controversial, and some people called me a victim blamer, and some people, you know people that I love very much who knew a lot about my work in the world started telling me that, you know, I hate women and all kinds of things. But then on the other side, there was a lot of people that it resonated with and were like, well, okay, I hear what you're saying, but like, teach me, how do I do it? At the time, like many people, now that we've gone through a year of a pandemic, lots of people have made a shift to online business. But at the time I was still a retired yoga teacher a body worker, a somatic experiencing practitioner. And I had a one-on-one practice and I was used to touching people and being able to help them with trauma through being in physical presence. So I was very afraid to take a group of people through a process, number one, because I wasn't trained as like a group facilitator other than yoga teaching, which oddly doesn't really train you to do it. But I'd been teaching and training people for 10 or 12 years. So I did have some experience holding a room and holding a room in physicality. But then to do it online was also like, oh, is that irresponsible? I don't know. And then I just said, F it. I'm just going to do it. So I started this class. It was called Activate Your Inner Jaguar, a real world understanding of your nervous system and embodied consent. Because I have a lot of ideas about how consent is framed in our culture based on our own ability to read our nervous systems and assuming that someone else is going to be able to read our nervous system for us and then blaming them for not being able to read our nervous system. So 
then it just built from there. And it was really out of the class that came the book because my first book was very hard to write. Um, I'm a single mom uh, and my daughter's father lives in Brazil. So it's like, I don't have a part, I don't co-parent. I'm, I'm the sole breadwinner and I'm the sole caretaker. So it's just a lot to breadwin and to write a book at the same time. But this one was just emergent. It was like, I said, okay, I'll do it if it's easier. I'll do it if I have a team. I'll do it if um, I have an editor that I love that gets it. I'm just not going to do it on my own in the same way. So it sort of fell into place. I found an agent. I didn't have an agent before. Uh, My agent had someone that she thought would be an ideal person. I didn't even have a proposal at the time. All I had was the class. And then it just sort of cascaded. It was really easy to write the proposal. you know, I enjoyed doing it because I was also like, you know, what? I just don't want to do this if I don't enjoy it. And not all the time, but at least some of the time. And then, you know, frankly, I didn't enjoy the last year of it because it was a pandemic and it was traumatic and it was really hard to write a book about the nervous system in the midst of so many changes and shifting grounds and the new conversation in race. And It is new, even no matter how long you've been studying this stuff, which for me, I had been studying it since high school. The fact that now there's certain terms that are common knowledge and the, and so now the lexicon of how we can, before there was really no common language to even talk about race in most spheres. No one ever asked me, what do you think about this? Or how do you deal with this in your life? Or how do you deal with anti-racism? That wasn't even a phrase that people were used. It was a conversation I was having a lot behind the scenes with friends and people who run businesses and in my personal life. So that also shifted how I could talk in the book and how I could weave power and the relationship of whiteness to power in the book in a way that really wouldn't have made sense the year prior. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that piece in because I was so impacted by how you did bring in the race conversation, the gender conversation, any of these power dynamics and power plays. And and so in many ways, I feel like it's the perfect timing for this book because there's even more in the common discourse about these issues and you offer this a new pathway. It's like we can't just intellectually learn our way out of these problems, whether it's rape culture or white supremacy culture. We can't do that. We have to, as you say, go into the body and learn a different way inside ourselves and then do it differently with each other. Totally. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping. I mean, I'm hoping that it's the book is coming at a time when people are ready to hear it. Of course, when, you know, I don't have a PhD, I have an undergraduate degree. So I'm writing a book from my own personal experience and from the experience of all of the people that I've worked with and through more of like a, almost like a cultural lens than a neuroscience lens. But I'm hoping that even that people are ready for, that people are ready to listen to someone that's not normally conferred authority upon and be willing to hear a different, a different perspective, a different way of doing things. Yeah. I'm like, thank God. Hallelujah. Like this is, this is what I, these are the books I want to read. These are the things I'm excited to receive because I feel so much of the lived experience and the lived wisdom in a way that 
oftentimes those more dry academic, you know, voices, they don't, they don't convey it in the same way that you do. Well, I think there's a couple reasons. And I mean, I don't know, I, I haven't read, honestly, I don't read a lot about trauma. I did when I was, you know, in trauma school, sort of, but I, it's not the way that I choose to learn this material. Uh, I, I went to an Ivy League. I graduated valedictorian of my class. I have a very capable intellect, but I, there was a certain point in my life where I realized the limitations of my intellect. And I, I chose to learn this material differently through my body. And I'm hoping that I, there's enough of the enough of the information so that people have a framework, but they're feeling it at the same time. And that, and that's the, my experience of teaching people in my courses is they're like, Oh yeah, I've learned, I learned this before. Like I know this language, but I didn't know it inside myself. And the, the knowing it in yourself is what makes you trustworthy. So it's what makes someone believe what you're saying and believe that you're an ally or believe that you're an advocate or believe that you truly will stand stand your ground and and that you can be present for difficult conversations. I love all of that and I'll say I am I spent 5 years training in somatic experiencing, you know, one of the methodologies that you bring in so much in the book and in your work and reading your book, I felt like I got things on a whole other level than I was able to through my training. So for anybody who's out there who's going to read this book, I highly recommend that you get it, that just know it, it did feel like that somatic trans transmission. I had so many bodily-based experiences, memories, ahas, things coming together that were really profound for me, even as someone steeped in the work. So you did, you did a good job. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I also think that it really is important that, and I think now is a time when people are starting to understand that we can value identity without making it into identity politics. So hearing it from the voice of a woman and a voice of a woman who's closer to your generation matters. And a lot of the trauma books, the bestsellers, Body Keeps the Score, Waking the Tiger, books that have been, you know, very impactful for me, the, the whose shoulders I stand upon, I, I intentionally didn't have a foreword for this book. My first book has a foreword. But when I was thinking, I did ask, I asked Esther Perel, she doesn't write forwards um, because she's busy and doing like, that's just some authors have a standard reply that they just don't do that. Um, but after I asked Esther, I was like, you know, I don't want Peter to write me a forward because that's actually the opposite of what this book is about. This book isn't about me asking somebody in a prior generation to give me a stamp of approval so that people will listen to me. This book has to stand on its own. It has to, it has to, you have to see it and feel it and know that this is something that you want to engage with. And I think that I really, I really went back and forth between even the title, it's how we heal trauma, between how women heal trauma, because essentially it's a book from the female perspective and a female who identifies as a woman. But then I thought, but every other trauma book doesn't say how men do this, but that's primarily what they do. And for me, I loved my somatic experiencing training. I mean, Peter's the first person that I think in the acknowledgments, the book would not exist without somatic experiencing. I think I had really special training because some of my trainings in Brazil had 30 students and 30 assistants. 
So it was a much, and there are a lot of dancers and a lot of people that were retired that were doing it more as a hobby. So there was a lot less charge around the work, a lot less agenda and just learning it in a different culture and a different language is really different. And all my teachers were men except one. And they were all men who were strongly identified in a predator role some of the time. And if we're going to talk about the gray area of sexual dynamics and power, they had probably found themselves some of the time um, and not probably some of them definitely had. So, and when I say that it's not cancel culture, it's basically naming that we're in a huge time of gray area and renegotiation that we're all in together. One thing that I hope comes through in the book, I don't know if it does, because this was one thing that my editor and I, I just don't know if she really got my point of view on this. Uh, I believe that we all have our boundaries crossed and we all cross boundaries. I don't think it's unidirectional. And I think that how we've moralized the predator and prey dynamic, that, that the predator is usually men. And so men are bad and that the prey is usually women. So women are good and that we get in these polarizations and they're just accepted. I mean, I've dated men that have just been trashing men all the time. And I'm like, do you really think that? Cause I don't think that, like, I don't think that like men writ large are the problem. That's not my point of view, but that's what they've internalized as a feminist message. And if they're going to be a quote unquote good man, then they're going to express this distrust of men all the time. So I understand that in our culture, and when I say culture, I mean white over culture, that most of the time men are encouraged into fight responses, which are irritation, frustration, anger, and rage. And it's more permissible for women to have prey responses, which are either flight or freeze, which in the flight is worry, uh, all the way up to anxiety and panic or freeze, dis confusion, disorientation, um, resignation, apathy. We don't really like those qualities inversely. We don't accept them as much. So there's so many different factors of how we locate ourselves in these nervous system dynamics. But it, I think it's really important that a lot of these conversations don't take place because as women, if we start to name gender as a possible factor in how the power is happening, it automatically means that we're naming ourselves a victim instead of just, no, we're just naming that this is a factor in this conversation or interaction we're having. This is so refreshing, Kimberly. And this is where I, I feel like you are on the forefront of what we need right now, which is bringing the conversation to a whole next level. Like we're not going to live into the world that we want. We're not going to stop a lot of these horrific dynamics that have been going on unless we are able to access the full range on all ends. Like you're saying, like we can't. And, and, and so, okay, I want to, I want to just back up for a second because you named the fight, flight, and freeze responses for women. But in your book, you also talk about fawning and fitting in. And can you speak to these? Because it's brilliant. And I feel like it's a part of the new conversation that even if we're not talking about a horrific assault or that kind of a thing, but just how we show up in our daily lives, that plays a huge role in what we're talking about. Yes. So 
many of your listeners probably already know something about polyvagal theory, but in 1994, Stephen Porges created a theory, authored a theory called polyvagal theory. And that changed the way that we thought of the autonomic nervous system. So in high school or middle school, if most of us learned about the nervous system, we learned that the sympathetic is their fight or flight response and the parasympathetic is rest and digest. And that's an apples to oranges comparison because the sympathetic nervous system has a fight or flight response when it's under threat, but the parasympathetic nervous system has a rest and digest response when it's not under threat or in safety. So in safety, so the other thing that polyvagal theory said is there's a whole other layer of the nervous system that's not even sympathetic or parasympathetic. In fact, it's a branch, a branch of one of them, a branch of the vagus nerve. So the social nervous system is the most recently evolved complex and it evolved from maternal bonding, which is a part of the conversation that was never emphasized in my training. And when I started to look at it more deeply, especially from working with so many women, I thought, okay, well, obviously this impacts women more because if it evolved for the breastfeeding relationship and for attunement between the mother baby dyad, then clearly it's going to impact us more because we were biologically wired to do that. So when we're feeling good in the social nervous system, that's where we feel that we belong. We feel we can be different and still belong. So it doesn't require conformity or, you know, we have to believe the same thing or behave the same way or dress the same way that we'll still have a sense of connectedness and belonging with our family or our community or each other without having to be the same. On the flip side of that is if we feel that we're under threat in the social nervous system, we will fawn. And fawning is approximating to the threat. So it's what explains why women often go back to abusive relationships or why these actresses went to the hotel rooms of somebody who had power because they wanted something there. It's a physiological response. So it's if you know that you'll be safer if the threat is closer to you than it is if it's wandering out there then you're likely to do that. And at a low level, it looks like niceness. It looks like people pleasing. It looks like I'm not really going to tell you what I need or what I think. And maybe I don't even know because I'm just going to meld with you because I'm not safe if I do stand out or stand my ground. The fitting in response, which is really my addition. So I'm curious as a practitioner, what you think of that, because uh, this was a risk that I took in the book. I've tried to talk to Stephen Porges about this. It didn't go well. It, it didn't go well because I'm not sure that he's really in a place where he talks with anyone who's not a non-scientist to evolve his understanding. He's a lovely human and I really enjoyed interviewing him. But when he describes fawning, he describes it as a superpower. He describes it as something that like girls who get kidnapped and then are impregnated by their captors, they have this superpower that they can do so that their captor doesn't understand. And to me, in a female body, I'm like, I see this everywhere and I was trained how to do it. And I know very well when it's happening and I know how it feels in my system and I watch people do it all the time. So for me, it's a normal response like all of them are. So that's another thing to know is that there's no good or bad in the nervous system. We're all cycling through social, sympathetic, parasympathetic each day, several times, many thousands of times, probably certain of them we clearly default to and we're used to more, but we're rolling through them. 
So fitting in is camouflaging. It's not standing out. Animals do it. Interestingly, predator and prey do it in the animal world because if you're a predator, you don't want your prey to see you, so you're going to try to fit in. But the fitting in in the social nervous system is like, you know, I'm just not going to stand out because if I stay with the crowd, then I'm safer. And uh, I and maybe you've been shown that if you were to stand out, that there would be a risk to that, and it could be a loss of your social structure, which most people don't understand is a survival need. So it's not just, oh yeah, too bad you don't like it when you're friends, you're in conflict. For some people, a con- interpersonal conflict can register as life-threatening because as a baby, we have to have our caretaker in order to survive. We can't, sur- that's why human babies are different. We just can't survive without the dyad. So uh, that's the sort of where the social nervous system lives. And what I find is that a lot of people are stuck in those social nervous system responses. So to me, the healthy fight response, which is power, drive, and healthy aggression, it, it kind of works on both sides of the cascade for women specifically, because I don't teach a class on how to activate your inner rabbit. Uh, <laughs> somebody else can teach that. Well, well, we don't need a class, right, Kimberly? Because, I mean, I just love listening to you because as somebody who is privileged to be in relative safety in my day-to-day life, where I struggle is in the fawning and the fitting in. And that's also with a lot of the people that I work with. Um, you know, there are some variations to that because some folks are dealing with real physical or emotional threats in a, in a more significant way. But this, in a way, this is, most of our experiences of womanhood is is the fawning and the fitting in. And so I'm curious, how do we start to transition from being a, kind of identified with the rabbit or these fawning and fitting in archetypes or patterns in the nervous system into having more comfort with the predatorial energy or being willing to take those risks of not fitting in or not being liked or not being invisible? I think the answer is in the felt sense in the body. So that's, that's why the book kind of transitions from at the beginning being sort of a, almost like a survey of the polyvagal theory, right? Chapter one is kind of like, okay, let me give you the landscape. Here's the territory that we're in. Here's the map. We can think about it, but we really need to situate ourselves. If there's no one home in the body, then there's no one there to do repairs. And our animal body doesn't require fawning. Or, like animals don't actually do that because they're not so attuned. They have, they have very complex social structures, but they don't have the same kind of eye gazing dependence, like that 18 inch sort of, let me read the fine muscles of your eyes and neck and jaw. I mean, I could say so many different ways to do it, but I think to me, it starts with proprioception. So that's something that I think is missing in most of somatic, quote unquote, somatic psychotherapy is really focused on interoception and like 
now what are you so the old days when it was like what are you feeling and you had an emotions and a feeling chart on the wall now it's what are you sensing and now there's a sensation chart on the wall both of those channels are really important and really they're they're inherent ways that we relate with our environment and and who we are but we also do need to be located and oriented and so I think that's where you start you start letting yourself notice the space that you're in you start noticing your state when you're out in nature versus when you're with your screen. You start noticing how you are in interactions with people. And you start not overvaluing your inner world. Can you say more about that? What does that mean, not overvaluing your inner world? I think that the presupposition in most of psychology, yoga, and meditation is that our inner world is what's really true and our outer world's not really true. That's material reality. It's not really that true. And that we can do everything inside of ourselves. And that's all we need to do because if we're the micro of the macrocosm, so if we just work on this microcosm, then we're going to change the world, let's say. And that's like, that's enough. But the thing is, when we're overly preoccupied with our inner world, we're not located because we're animals that live in an environment. And the environment is giving us a reflection back of how our nervous system is impacting other people. So that intensity of, I got to find out what's wrong with me. Why do I feel this bad? There must be something wrong with me, which is why most people are going to yoga, meditation, or psychotherapy. That's all right. You're already entering at a level of activation where you think you have a problem and you think you need to find your problem. That's not going to create a level of presence, comfort. And I mean, in my spiritual practice, I was really encouraged to never have a preference for anything. So for me, somatic experiencing was really hard because my practitioner would say like, okay, so you're feeling that. And, and do you like that? And I would just be like, I'm neutral. I was neutral about it. I was neutral about everything. Like I thought that's what the point was is like, I just got really super good at being neutral. And I didn't know that was a kind of a freeze state, right? It's a coping mechanism to not to like stay out of these evil sensations that are only there to take you out of universal awareness. For me personally, that wasn't satisfying. And and I still felt like I was living underwater most of the time, occasionally peeking up above it. It was only in this relationship with the outer world that it's, it does, it's not philosophical. It's just like, just actually looking around and noticing where I am and really seeing where I am. So everyone's had the experience of driving on the freeway or driving on the street. And then you've passed the street. You weren't, you didn't even notice you weren't there. So, and some people consider that a flow state. That's not a flow state. That's disorientation. And those aren't necessarily separate, like flow and disorientation can actually kind of go or dissociation can kind of go together. Uh, But I feel that a lot of the people that I work with, at least, it's really in the proprioceptive awareness of how you're located in space and the relationships between you and space, both internally and externally, where a lot of settling happens in the system. Mm. Yeah. And, it, and as you're saying, it's like without that settling, we don't actually get a lot of choice or have a lot of options about how we respond, whether that's physically or socially, interpersonally with other people. And I think there's a, there's this thing of like, 
what that looks like is flatlined. It looks like flat affect. And flat affect doesn't register as safety. I mean, it might if you, it might if you live in Boulder because everyone's Buddhist and everyone's walking around like that. But it might be what you get used to, but it's not what your animal body registers as safe. And, and I've noticed, you know, I have a, a fairly, I'm an expressive person. I come from an expressive family. I make a lot of facial expressions. Uh, and that always endeared me to some people and really made some people irritated because I wasn't willing to conform. I'm very devotional and I'm very willing to follow a form and a structure. Like I know how to be a good student, but at the same time, I'm not willing to just leave this whole personality at the door and think this other thing is more real than that. And in fact, in the social nervous system, what's registering in safety is also an inner outer. It's a ping pong. So that experience, you know, when I was a rolfer, I used to think that when people would talk to me on the table, I would just kind of roll my eyes, like not to them, but that's sort of how I thought like, okay, just blah, 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 just keep talking. And I never paid attention to the content that they were talking about. But also it was because I was uncomfortable. I didn't know how to have a relational conversation. I was a really good student. It's not that I didn't have good friends. I had great, I've always been blessed to have great friends, but they were one-on-one connections with a lot of intensity. I didn't like chit-chatting. I, I still don't love it, but I know how to do it now at least. And I don't find it offensive. I used to find it like offensive. Um, now I understand, no, that's actually a normal way to relate to people. Like you don't meet someone and all of a sudden you have to talk about like the most important thing to you. You meet someone and you can talk about the weather because that's normal. You're an animal. You notice what the weather is. You can have a back and forth with someone. So that was huge for me. Um, my, one of my SE teachers here in the U.S. was Steve Hoskinson, who's now an organic intelligence teacher. But I feel like his contribution to SE was really, you know, he's from Kentucky, which he would joke and say, like, it's the art of the bullshit, you know, the porch conversation. But it really helped. He would call it the, the free association conversation, where you really are just having a relational conversation with someone. So I really add that into my teaching. I'm sure some people think I'm just distracted because I'm not giving them bullet points or, but it's like, no, I'm actually just, it's a way also for me to diminish my authority or the pedestal that someone might put me on is that I just talk about what's going on and I'm honest about it because I also don't think that it serves, especially now in a pandemic where everyone's going through a lot and a lot's happening behind the scenes. It doesn't behoove anyone for me to show up and act like it's just all easy. And cause I wrote this book on trauma that I'm not also working through all the events of life because that's a real misconception is that somehow we're going to like tick all the oh, proprioception check orientation check. Oh, activated my healthy nervous system response check. And then you're done with it. Like this is the waves get bigger that you're surfing. You know, the checks in the bank might get bigger um, you know, the, the stakes get higher sometimes, but it's just that you can roll with those changes a lot more easily when your system is more um, resilient, but you don't opt out of life difficulty. Yeah, we, we don't get to somehow not be human or not be experiencing the vulnerability or the uncertainty of that whole thing of, of human totally. life. Yeah. Uh, okay, this brings up a, uh, something I wanted to get to with you because in your book, you write about the phenomenon of upper limits, which I think for people who are in the personal growth and development 
seen, you know, people know what that means intellectually, like, oh, I can't handle more goodness. And I love how you write about it. So can you talk to us about what is the issue with women and upper limits and how do we actually, not intellectually, but somatically increase our capacity to tolerate more goodness, more pleasure? So many ways to do that. But one of the ways that I do it is, for instance, in my bank account. So my sort of money thing was that my parents had a decent amount of money, not like super rich or anything, but I grew up in a part of San Diego that's really wealthy. And I went to prep school and I just didn't think anyone was happy. So I was just like, this is lame. I don't want money. I want to be happy without money. Then I became a yoga teacher that really reinforced that story. You know, um, lots of different messages there about renunciates and asceticism and that being more real and that being better. So it fit right into my philosophy about becoming happy without money. And I'm actually really glad for that because I actually really am happy without money. And I think there's a lot of power in that. I think it's awesome because I'm not afraid of losing everything. I'm not, I know that I can live on so little. And I think that that is an amazing foundation to have. And there came a point specifically becoming a mom realizing the level of dependence that I had on both my parents and outside structures because I was unwilling to buy into the system and not in big ways, but like my dad was still paying my car insurance. Or if I had a problem, like a dental thing, then I would have to ask for money. So just knowing that there was a safety net, but also feeling like I don't really, I don't really know. I don't have a handle on this. I work hard, but I'm not really thinking about the future Uh, I was kind of dissociated around money. So a couple of years ago, someone asked me like, well, how much money do you want to make? And I was just like, I don't know. Like, how much is it okay to make? Like, it just all seemed very random. Like, I don't know. Like, I could have said, literally, you could have said 5,000 or 25,000. And to me, it was all the same. So I kind of asked a couple of people, well, like, how much are you making? And one of my friends told me she was making $30,000 a month somebody that I really respect, someone that I love a lot, someone that's making money, doing something with tons of value. So I was like, oh, okay, it's okay to make 30,000. And then that same month, I sat on an airplane next to someone with a computer open and he was trading 1.5 million in his portfolio and I could see the numbers. And it just clicked inside me. Like there's absolutely no reason that I shouldn't be doing that. There's zero reason. I have the education, I have the privilege, I have the information to offer. I should do it. So seeing those numbers, then within like two months, I made 30,000 in a month, but I just leave it in the account. And then I track my body when it's in the account. So before what I would start doing is I would start giving it away. I would get it. And then I would, so I'm not a big spender on things personally, but I give a lot of money away. One of the most loving things my dad did for me recently is he helped me do this spreadsheet forecasting thing. And, you know, my dad's complete, my dad's really traditional of his generation. So he's been paying into this kind of life insurance for 35 years. That's, you know, accrued a ton of wealth and he's a Libra. It's just like, everything is so rational and like so planned out. So I'm a wild card. I mean, he kind of can't believe what I'm doing right now because it's just like, I'm doing it from my gut and my instinct and I've gotten so good at it. And he's just like, (laughs) okay. But he 
put a budget because I was like, dad, I don't have a budget. And like, maybe I should. And like, you know, do you want to help me? So he did. And then he put in the budget 500 a month and he just put giveaway because he knows I'm going to do it anyway. And in, and he didn't judge me for it because I know he thinks like you could make this tax deductible and you could do this and you could do that. But I get so much joy out of just giving people money that is under the table. That's like, I'm just giving this person that I know needs it something or loaning it. And it doesn't have to be official. So I just look at the amount and I don't do anything with it for a while. And I just let it sit there and I just hold it. And in the book, I call it a hold it moment. I just let it sit in my system. And then I do the same with like a compliment because sometimes I just, I hear something and I deflect it or I don't think it's important. Like this morning I was doing a workout and I was working out in my pajamas on Zoom and I looked crazy. I mean, I just woke up and I didn't care. And I, I went, it was like 6.29, I woke up and I got in the workout at 6.30, but someone was on there that hadn't seen me for a long time. And the first thing she said was, hey, oh, sexy in the morning. And I was kind of like, what? Like, I look nuts. Like, my hair is all over the place. And so in that, in that instance, I don't, didn't really hold it. I just was like, huh. But practicing all the different ways, whatever it is. And also, you know, the beautiful thing that the book Big Leap was Gay Hendricks' idea. And he was tracking his own marriage and how every time they had a conflict, Instead of trying to dig into the problem, they looked at the deepening intimacy that they had before, and that shifted their whole relationship. I think that's another thing to just notice. And I have people in my life that'll say that if I'm feeling some way, they're like, are you sure it's not an upper limit problem? Like, for instance, on Saturday, I finally got my hard copy of my book, and I invited some people over, and then it turned into this huge kind of party almost. And then I cried a ton and then I screamed and I danced to welcome to the jungle. And, you know, there's like a lot. And then noticing if there's like a, a descent after that, it's like, well, yeah, of course there is because you just rode a big wave of activation. And just because it's not negative activation doesn't mean there's not a dip on the other side of that wave. Yeah. I thank you so much for sharing all of these examples. I love thinking of you in the early morning workout and, you know, and the money, thank you for speaking to the money piece, because I think in my experience in myself and then working with women, it's like we hit these points where we, we aren't taught how to be with the intensity of the energy, whether it's positive, negative, or it's not usually neutral if it's a lot of energy, but, but what I, what I love about your work is how you're training and helping people to know really practical ways to actually have a greater capacity. And totally. in that greater capacity is where our power lies. If I'm understanding your work correctly, is that, is that resonating? Definitely. And also it's been such a huge tool in, I don't want to use the word interpreting, but that's, what's coming to mind. The behavior of other people in my life because sometimes other people can't, don't have the capacity to handle how good something is for you. And that's really, that came up a lot for me. Instead of viewing that as a rejection, it's just like, oh, that's a capacity thing. Like they're, they just can't hold that much stuff, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, I share an example, my first book, it arrived in a box and I was it some, for some reason, my publisher had my parents' address. So I opened the book and it was the first time, you know, so that's totally, I mean, that book was like 
years and years and years. And just, it, I turned in my first manuscript and they rejected it and they used the word, they rejected it. And like, I was a straight A student. I never got rejected in anything. I just couldn't believe it. So it's just like such a labor of love and stamina. And I opened it and I started crying and screaming at the same time and jumping up and down. And my parents were standing on either side of the kitchen island and they turned and they walked away from me to the other side of the room. And, you know, I could have taken that personally because it, it was weird. It was just frankly super weird, but it also just showed me, oh, they, they can't actually handle this. It's like too much for them. And it told me a lot about why I feel certain ways about being their kid. But it also, what I did was I called up my friends and were like, can you meet me at this place? This was like four years ago and put cool and the gang on and I'm going to redo this. And so I resealed up the book and I taped it shut and then I did it over again. And I made a positive reparative experience for myself so that I don't have that, that negative quote unquote memory. I don't feel negatively towards my parents about it. I just feel like, wow, okay. That's like showing me a lot. And so for me, that's what all of this work helps with is it takes away the layer of shame of I shouldn't be this way or why am I that way? Or, you know, I have friends, even business partners that sometimes don't make eye contact or when I first see them, they don't make eye contact. And for a long time, not only me, but other people were like, I don't think so-and-so likes me. And then I realized, oh, that person is just really deep in their inner world and they don't come easily into the outer world. And that's interpreted as arrogance. It's interpreted as they don't like me. But really, that's just them and their nervous system. They're in a nervous system state. And if you know, if you live with a person, then there's like more negotiation to do around that. But rather than personalizing it, it's like it's not, it has nothing to do with me. It's just, and then it's like interesting to me. Oh, that's interesting how that ner- like how I interpret that nervous system state. Yeah, I. This feels like something I want to highlight also because it's a it's a another kind of power, that individuation, that intimacy with self, awareness of self and self nervous system, and then the ability to see somebody more for who they are, as opposed to all that interpretation and personalization of it. Again, another piece where I feel like as women, we often lose a lot of our power um, and feel really threatened with all the mind chatter about how we're interpreting somebody else's state or how they're showing up toward us. Totally. And an ability to maintain our own proprioception and interoception with another person. So we have the superpower of bonding and we have estrogen. And both of those things make us hyper aware of how other people are. And that's why in menopause, women normally just don't give a fuck anymore and like stop caring about what everyone else thinks and stop caring about dinner being on the table because they have less estrogen. So there's less, um, there's less moving in that way. But it, can, it is a superpower. It is amazing that we can read a room and that we can know what people need. And we need to not only practice boundaries, which is a part of the book, right? Because a healthy aggression and fight response, you have to be localized. You have to know the contours of your system and you have to know how to mobilize your system. So it's not to blame yourself for those attunements. It's just to notice when those are turned turned in on yourself. And I find that that's another way that female conditioning and spiritual conditioning overlay is that there's this thing that there's this idea that we're all just too self-centered and that it's bad to be so self-centered. 
at least, and I, I know spiritual is a big word. And so maybe people listening, their path is totally different than what mine was. But there's this idea that we should always, and religion, we should take the point of view of the other person, right? We should see it from their shoes. We should take the opposite perspective. And most of the women that I work with, they can very elaborately lay out and defend the pattern of the other people that they're with. And it's just like, but what about you? Yeah. And I know because I've done it so much in my life, like I could say, and I excused so much behavior because it was like, well, this, like my ex-husband, well, he had, I mean, look at his parenting. He didn't have good parenting. And, oh, well, look at, he has this trauma because of this, this, and this. And I was so willing to give him so much space to be in his thing without claiming, but, but why, why am I doing this? Like, because again, it's like, that's being good, right? It's being good to be so generous and it's being and nice and, uh, I, and non-reactive. I would be so non-reactive to his rage and his um, acting out. But that's not coming from an animal place. That's coming from a rational mental place. And we're, we're afraid of our wildness. We're afraid that if we're wild, we'll be out of control because that's, that's the white colonial conditioning. Everything wild needs to be contained needs to be dominated and decimated to a certain extent. And the only thing trustworthy is culture. The only thing trustworthy is organization. So we, the wildness will tell us, but we can't even hear it because the voices of what everyone else thinks and what everyone else feels and is, are so loud. I loved that part of your book and I love everything you're saying right now, Kimberly, because we have created safety for ourselves as women in the socialization and being nice and being good and being able to put ourselves in other people's shoes. And you're really calling us into something totally different and totally radical that can include empathy and compassion and social relatability. But it also includes a ferocity, a boundary setting, a, you know, a willingness to stand apart from the pack in all these ways. And and it feels risky. Like, I just want to name that. It, it feels risky in myself, but I've been doing this work so long that I know that's the risk I want to take as opposed to the risk of not existing or not being myself. But for women out there who are afraid to be more wild, to rewild, to claim the wild, what, where would you have them gain some courage or some willingness to take that risk? Well, we would be lying to ourselves if we didn't think that there wasn't a lot of risk involved in not doing it. Because if we're feeling lonely, isolated, depressed, anxious, disconnected, numb, there's a lot of risk in that as well um, for the sake of maintaining a relationship that's not serving either. It could be a relationship with yourself, agreements you've made with yourself or with someone else. It's a good question, but I don't know that I have the answer because to me, there's never been a choice. It's like a choiceless choice. It's life moving through me in a way that I I have to follow. It's like the this, this ship is steering and I, and I have to go. Like it just feels like there's no choice. So I just know there's so much life available so much power so much joy I mean I I think I'm a pretty like kind person I don't think that I walk around the world like it's not being a jaguar doesn't mean you walk 
around the world hunting people all the time. That's, that's not wild, that's feral. So if you think about a wolf in a hen house, that's a wolf that's approximated domestication. That's not a wild wolf. Wild wolves only kill what they need to eat, period. They don't kill more than what they need to eat. That's, that's it. So what we think of a predator is a predator that's out of control. That's in nature, that doesn't happen, again, unless it's approximating domestication. A jaguar hunts when it's hungry, chills out, plays with its cubs. Uh, you know, you see jaguars lying on trees. It's a very small percentage of their life that they're actually in predator hunt mode because you don't need to be. But the, the point is reestablishing these self-protective and self-defensive mechanisms so that you know that if you do need them, that they will kick in and you can trust that. So just like a great martial artist, they don't walk around thinking they're going to get in a fight any minute and being hypervigilant. In fact, anything you learn in martial arts is, is if you can get away, do get away. This is a last resort thing. But for women, in my experience, most of us need to learn how to develop that power to stay with a target and to move towards it without letting it go and to build that capacity. So how do you do that? I've done that through breath work. I've done that through ice bathing, which is kind of a whole another question. I've done that through choosing a male therapist that had a physicality close to my perpetrators and reestablishing, you know, having him come at me with a broom or stalk me and see how my system responds to that. And of course, it's not just like I walk in the room and that's the first thing we do. You build up to it. But how did I know to do that? Because my body wanted to do it. I didn't do it because someone told me it was good for me or I thought I should do it. I did it because I felt a compulsion and a knowing like, okay, I've only had women therapists since one time in high school. There's some part of me that's afraid of doing that with a man. That's weird because I don't day to day feel like I'm afraid of being with men. But why am I afraid of being in that intimate space with a man? Okay, this is my next level of healing. And then the same thing with sexological bodywork. Okay, I can do this vulva work with women and I'm, it's an edge, but I feel as a, as a client, I can do it. And then, but what happens if there's a man on the other side of that? Is that an edge I want to cross? Is there repair there for me? Okay, yeah, I think there is repair there for me. Okay, I'm going to try that. So it's following the breadcrumbs that arrive for you. And I guess what I could say, which is sounds self-promotional, but it's like, check out the book. You can download the first chapter for free. Um, you can hear about other women's experiences, but I think we gain courage by hearing each other's stories. I think we gain courage by listening to one another. And that's another way, that's a way to build a different kind of a belonging. Because some people say to me, there's this ethos that like, you should find it all in yourself, that all the answers lie in yourself, right? And that, again, we should just be this self-reliant, whether it's spiritual or whether it's a, as a mother, this white overculture is just all about like self-sufficiency. And I don't believe that. And I believe that if you're in a hard time in the in, inner stories you're telling yourself, you're not really sure, you shouldn't believe that you should ask someone else who you trust to give you an accurate reflection. And unfortunately, we're living in such a challenging time right now where none of us are getting enough mirroring. None of us have availability 
to be with other mammals as much as, and this was a problem way before the pandemic. So I think the courage lies in, in knowing that it's a pretty, I mean, to me, it's a go for broke time anyway. Yeah. Right. Like the words noticing the world's not really like things aren't really working that well for us. The culture's not really like if you thought people think, oh, well, the government should support me. We should change maternal leave. Um, it's like the father, doctor, God that was maybe going to come rescue us isn't coming. And like we are going to have to do it. Then to me, that's enough motivation. Oh, I have chills with that. Yes. It's like everything has crumbled, reorganized, is reorganizing. So why not? And with support, like you're saying, not alone, but with each other, with reading your book, which I highly recommend, um, with listening to stories, with talking to people, let's leap in. Let's take the risk to be more in our full range, more in our bodies as women and see what that translates to in terms of the world we want to be living in, the world we want to be creating for ourselves, but also on a more collective scale. But I think that people listening, especially if they're listening to this conversation in your podcast, like some of them, they've already done some of this work. They've already taken a step in to listen to these incredibly rich, deep conversations. For me, and maybe it's just my path, but on my path, it's just been very obvious that there's choice points where either I choose life or I choose compromise, which eventually is going to diminish my own connection to my soul and to what I really came here to do. And it is difficult. Sometimes there's, there's a lot of grief and a lot of loss and a lot of death. Um, you know, I, I'm a student of Marion Woodman's work and she talks about being married to the same man four times. Um, you know, she, she's more dramatic about it. So she says, I've been married four times. And then she says to the same person, but they had to bury their contracts and start over again. And I think that to really be alive in life, that's what it takes. It takes the courage to allow parts of ourselves to die, to let go of phases of life. Um, so it's not an easy path, but to me, to me, it's the only, it's the only one because other parts of you die if you don't. Yes. So beautifully said. Kimberly, where can people access the first chapter of your book, your entire book? Tell us. You can go to KimberlyAnnJohnson.com and right there on that first page, you'll see you can download the first chapter of the book. And um, there's some really cool offers to um, a Jaguar playlist. We didn't totally get into the whole Jaguar um, thing, but you can find out about that in the book. And for me, the Jaguar is the predator animal or the hunter animal that I vibe with the most. Um, but it was something that's given to me. It's not like a traditional spirit animal. It was something that um, someone was a transmission that I received through the, from the male practitioner that I was talking about because he was from the Amazon, which I didn't know. And then he said, like, do you know that I'm from the Amazon? It's the mothers that teach the cubs to hunt. And when he told me that I recognized, I was at the time feeling very sorry for myself because I was having to be the unconditional love and the di disciplinarian at the same time. And it was just a total reframe of, 
you know, of this predator prey that we just assume that the hunter is the male. And we just, even in the modern anthropomorphic description of, of how we've evolved, it's always like, well, the men went and hunted and the women are the hunter gatherers. It, it just turned everything on its head for me and gave me even more permission to inhabit this energy and to really take a stand for, for myself and for, you know, it's interesting, even with the book of how at the beginning I said, you know, like I own this because that's a very Jaguar statement, but on another day, there can be times when I think, well, is it really mine? And because I can easily go into that universal space, which is more parasympathetic, right? A trance state is more of a parasympathetic state where I'm like, well, it belongs to everyone and it's the collective and it's in the ether. And so, you know, it's not the, it's, it's both. I have chills, Kimberly, with it's the mother who teaches the cubs to hunt. Yes. And I want to, I want to just say something in response to what you said about, you know, this universal thing versus it belonging to you, because I, I, I just need to spend a moment praising and celebrating you. Are you okay with that? Sure. Can you, can you hold that? And I will. Yeah. Because, and this is for the listener too, because. I am steeped in this work, but from my own, you know, flavor and slice of the pie, because you and I are different, like that healthy individuation, we just have different roles to play. We're different human beings, different nervous systems, different biographies. But when I read this book, I was highlighting, I was having chills, I was crying, I was saying hallelujahs inside my mind, because how you weave these pieces together of trauma embodiment, feminism, attachment, sex, sexological body work, our power as women, it, it belongs to you. Like nobody else could have synthesized this the way that you did. Nobody else could have lived a life the way that you have to create this body of work. And I really want you, I'm going to cry saying that, like, I really want you to hear that and receive that in your body because you have a gift and your soul is on the planet for a reason. And both of your books, the fourth trimester was like my Bible while I was pregnant and while I was going through it postpartum. And this book is a treasure chest for women. It holds a key that is not being talked about and you are leading the way. And so I just want to thank you. everyone's opinions matter, but yours matters a little bit more just because, you know, it's different with people who have different experience levels. And I, I really want as many people as possible to be able to read this book. And I want people of all genders to be able to read it. I think there's something there because I want to, I want this conversation. I want it to be different for our daughters. I want it to be different for in five years than it is now. I want us to be able to have the hard conversations in a way that we don't have to um, polarize each other and decide who's good and who's bad and, and really be able to find common ground, not through erasing difference, but through respecting it and understanding that most people care a lot and most people want to do the right thing and that we have to give each other our codes in order to be able to do that. Yes. Yes. To all of that. And 
the courage and bravery that you have had in your own life to walk your path, to follow the crumbs, to follow the instincts so that you could be where you are today. Like, I just want to thank you for that. And I want, I want to also shine the light on that for women who are listening, like who are following their own path and their own instincts and maybe not knowing what's right sometimes. Like when we do our work and when we listen and follow the call, we end up having an enormous amount to contribute. It's true. That's what weaves the new world. Yeah, and I want to live in that different world too. And I want our daughters to live there. Yeah, and when you asked me earlier, just one final thought, when you asked me earlier about how to find the courage, then I would just say, find the role models. Find find the people who you resonate with. They might challenge you. I've had plenty of role models that, kind of rubbed me the wrong way, honestly, but I was like, there's still something there. There's something in the rub that's calling me there. Follow that and, and find elders, um, find people who are, who are grandmothers who are farther along than where you are, because we can't see it horizontally sometimes. Thank you for naming that. And I agree. It's like, whether the role models in a book or in an audio or in live person or someone next door, that that is one of the ways that we find our courage as women. Kimberly, I thank you for being here. Thank you for taking the time with us. Thank you most importantly for who you are and the work that you've created and contributed and will continue to contribute. And people listening, you got to get this book. It's it blew me away. I have multiple chapters I have to go back to and reread. It's now going to be my most recommended book to all my clients. It's brilliant. And it is so the future. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Women Today podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and take a moment to leave a rating and a review. The more five-star ratings this podcast gets, the more easily women around the world will be able to access this valuable information. Remember, we each have our unique role to play in this collective uprising for women all over the world. Whoever you are and wherever you find yourself in this moment, there is a deep intelligence to your particular place in the wider web, and we need the specific experiences, insights, and gifts that only you carry. I am sending you my heartfelt strength and support for wherever you are on the journey, and I'll look forward to connecting again next week.